Highways Voices, the podcast of Highways News, your one-stop destination for all the news about the highways and transport technology industries, and our must-read daily newsletter. This week on Highways Voices, we talk cleaning up transport. Just as safety became part of everybody's job, environmental sustainability is too. You have technological solutions, you've got process solutions, but at the end of the day, it comes down to people changing the way that they behave. Discussing the race to decarbonise roads, no hot air, just sound sense on this week's Highways Voices. Highways Voices, in association with partner organisations Elkrig, Adept, the Transport Technology Forum and ITS UK. So that panel discussion from Highways UK to come on Highways Voices and in a moment, but first let's pick out some of the stories on the Highways News website that have caught the eye of my co-owner of the site, Adrian Tatum. A new report released this week reveals that the scrappage scheme launched by the Mayor of London City Calm to help London's prepare for the ultra-low emission zone and its expansion last year worked successfully in reducing emissions and car ownership and increasing the use of public transport. It's estimated that the mayor's scrappy schemes have helped cut toxic emissions in the capital, removing a total of 140 tonnes of nitrogen oxides alone. The CO2 saving is the equivalent that is generated by a lorry travelling 1.5 million miles. And a £150 million project to create the UK's first all-electric bus city by 2025 has taken a major step forward with 50 new greener buses on the streets of Coventry. Transport for West Midlands has been working with Coventry City Council on the scheme and has secured £50 million of Department for Transport funding to develop charging infrastructure and to top up the investment being made by bus operators in upgrading their fleets with electric vehicles. This will include upgrades such as charge point at bus depots across Coventry and Warwickshire. The 50 new National Express Coventry double-decker buses are the first of up to 300 vehicles due to arrive in the next three years in the city under the pollution-busting Coventry's electric programme. National Express have also invested over 60 million, meaning that a third of the Coventry fleet is now electric, with another 80 committed for early 2023. And finally, the City of Bradford Metropolitan District Council is looking for drainage contractors to complete all types of drainage work across the district. The council has an obligation to clean, repair, and maintain drain and gullies throughout the Bradford district. Therefore, seek up to eight experienced contractors to be appointed to the framework. Whilst the volume of work cannot be guaranteed, as it can result from adverse weather, in the last 12 months, there have been 100 days of drainage work. Of these, the majority are for work using the larger jet back appliance, according to the contractor notice. Meanwhile, don't forget you can get those stories and so many more every day, either by going to the website as we update it or via LinkedIn or Twitter, or you can get it in one handy daily email into your inbox every lunchtime. Sign up at highwaysnews.com. Highways Voices with Paul Hutton and Adrian Tatum. Earlier in the month was the hugely successful Highways UK event in Birmingham, and I was delighted to be asked to host the keynote session on the Thursday morning. One One of the sessions was about the race to decarbonise roads and the organisers pulled together a terrific panel of experts for this and the discussion was so good it was worth bringing to you. So let's hear from Kim Yates, UK and Europe Climate Change Operational Lead at Mott MacDonald, Ramin Masumi, Global Solutions Director at Arcadis, Lara Young, Group Climate Change Director at Costane and Steve Elderkin, Director of Environmental Sustainability at National High. I think we've seen an enormous change in the industry in the last couple of years. We published our net zero plan just over a year ago and it set out our commitments to be net zero 
corporately by 2030, net zero for construction and maintenance by 2040, and net zero for road user emissions by 2050. It really matters nationally and internationally that we do this as an industry. So we are now the dirtiest, highest polluting sector. So our delivering on those commitments is significant for whether the UK can meet its international obligations around climate change. How are we doing? I think one fact just to shape it is that 98.4% of our footprint we estimated last year came from the tailpipe of existing vehicles on existing roads. So how we are doing will depend on how quickly we decarbonise the vehicle stock and reduce emissions from vehicles. Let's move down, Kim. The mood across this industry has changed tremendously. I've been working in this field for a very, very long time. And most of the time I've been sat out there going, hello, we need to decarbonise. This is not a good thing. We have climate change. But now, quite literally, I'm sat here front and centre next to Steve, looking at how we decarbonise roads. And as Steve rightly said, National Highways has a way of decarbonising what's in its direct control, but there's an awful lot that it can do to influence what's happening at DFT level, how we're driving, etc., to do that full decarbonisation towards net zero, as we term it. I think we've still got quite a way to go, but my God, the industry is, is behind this. And I have, if you excuse the pun, never worked in a climate like this before. So when I think about this, your question about how we're doing, I think, as Kim pointed out, as an industry, the fact that we're here talking about it, that's great progress. I know as an organization, Arcadis, it's in our DNA. However, I, I think we are at a key junction where one thing the last two and a half years we've learned because of COVID is our access to information to people has changed quite a bit. And we're at a point in time where we need to take that to the next level and rethink and reshape behavior around movement about access. We still have a lot of work ahead of us and we need to take a much more aggressive approach to achieve the goals that we're all here talking about. And Laura? There's been a monumental shift over the last few years. There genuinely has. We framed the challenge, or even if we don't have all the answers, where we've got to at the moment is, okay, we know where the long-term target is. We've set out plans or a structure around where we need to do. And the key bit now is actually following through on the intentions. So we've made, we've made some great plans, but they actually need to happen in order to drive the change. So for me, that's, we're at that tipping point at the moment where there's been a great amount of ambition, momentum's good, but now we really have to get to crunch time of the harder part of making this an actual reality. So we're not doing it at scale or the pace that we need yet. Kim, you said that the industry is taking it seriously, and I think that's true. Do you think that the actual travelling public are taking it as seriously, or have we still got messaging to do to get people to think individually, rather than carbon reduction is, is a good thing that other people should do rather than themselves? That is a very, very good point, because it is all from the top. That messaging has to be very, very clear. 
it's also a fact that, you know, as you say, oh, so-and-so will do it over there. The government will fix it all. Everybody has an individual responsibility to try and decarbonise, but it is our job to try and make it easy for people to do that. The more barriers, if, if you make it the way, as in electric vehicles, for example, if you make that an easy, affordable choice, people go, well, it's a bit of a no-brainer, really. I'll move that way. The messaging has to be very, very clear from the top. It is concerning me that the rhetoric has died down, particularly with what's been going on very high level in the UK. But the UK are one of the leaders in the world in decarbonisation and addressing climate change. It would be a shame for political intervention to stop that. But we need that clear intervention all the way through. Just on the point around end users and you know people's individual roles and responsibilities of achieving net zero, there is no one size fits all and I think it is really hard to try and prescribe, although it would be the easier option to say, well actually this is what everyone has to do, A, B and C. That doesn't really work because what worked for me won't work for me. We're all different and I think a key part of it is actually out of all of the options that an individual has, they all have to be by default decarbonised. So whether it is the roads, whether it is a form of that mobility, I think it's, there is no one size fits all and we need to move away from trying to find that perfect solution and actually it's making all the options available to everyone by default decarbonised so it becomes the no-brainer and it, it's not a personal choice or because it's the right thing to do or the nice thing to do, it's just the default. I think it's that, that old adage of perfect is the enemy of good will never actually have everything perfectly right, data, everything, but the more you keep on pushing to try and achieve that perfection and stop stagnating, the better chance we have of addressing climate change. You mentioned, Steve, about tailpipe emissions, and so that obviously means moving from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles. But I was only chatting to a friend outside of the industry at the weekend. I said about electric vehicles and how I'm looking to move, and he said, well, my problem is that you open the paper one day and it tells you that we're going to have rolling blackouts this winter because we won't have enough power to power the homes and the businesses of the country. And then the next minute, they're telling us to then massively increase our electricity consumption by having electric vehicles. And are we giving enough confidence to people that actually making the change is going to work for them? On Monday, we were visited by the executive of the Norwegian Roads Authority, and they set out what they are doing to encourage decarbonisation of vehicle stock in Norway. One chart really struck home, which was 80% of new vehicles sold in Norway are electric, and they've done that by making it make absolute financial sense. So really clear and consistent financial incentives for people to, to take up electric vehicles. I've had an electric vehicle for about four years. At the old price for electricity, it was vastly cheaper per mile travelled to drive an electric car. That's not really so true anymore, so it is an, an issue that will need to be addressed. There's lots of reasons why our electricity system needs lots of investment, not just electric cars. We could have had a very similar conversation at Highways UK three or four years ago. What we're talking about here isn't new. 
I believe we are moving forward and I believe that there is a, a, a big difference in what we're delivering compared to what we were four years ago. But, but what are the continuing blockers to delivery? Because we can all sit around agreeing that what we want to do is a good thing, but how do we actually turn that into reality and what's stopping us? We've got very hung up on EVs just there, but what the Norwegian government hopefully mentioned was that most of their electricity is renewable anyway. They have a surplus of electricity. So the changes that we're seeing in the way that we're looking at it, it's trying to think in a system of systems way. We're not just looking at the road, we're looking at the wider piece and what you can influence all the way through. But that is an exceptionally difficult thing to do because you need people to collaborate, to work together. So you have technological solutions, you've got process solutions, but at the end of the day, it comes down to people changing the way that they behave and making it business as usual. We have to work collaboratively. So this is something that every single one of us, not only in this industry, but globally have to take on as our own individual responsibility to change our behavior. I, I go back to it's all about our behavior to move, to access. So if we all take our own individual steps, they'll make a huge significant difference. There is an element of marketing and education that I think is still lacking amongst the general population. That's where I see there's more improvement needed. Sure, as an industry, we're providing better resources. We talked about electrification. Countries like Norway have made a lot of progress. But end of the day, we have to go back to who are the ultimate users and who are the people that will make the most difference. And that's every single one of us. I'll just use myself as an example. Pre-COVID, I would hop on a plane for one hour to go meet with somebody for one hour, not thinking twice about that. But what COVID taught me is the ability to get access to information and people through a Teams meeting or a Zoom meeting. And that has become a norm. So that, I've taken that on myself to change my own behavior and eliminate all those small travels and small trips. If I do my part and do even more of that, and we all collectively do that, that's where we're gonna see, I think, the significant change. Is there gonna be pain? Absolutely, we're all in a transition stage. Are there gonna be poor portions that might not work smoothly? Absolutely. But we just have to continue and stick with it and chip away at it and we'll get there. Are we truly outcome focused? Are we enacting things now to get us where we need to be or is there still quite a lot of short-termism? I would say no, we're not. One of the biggest barriers we have is that we're getting, to Kim's point, a little bit hung up on trying to have the perfect solution, knowing all the answers. No one has all the answers and no one has a perfect plan. So I think we need to just acknowledge that. And it isn't going to be easy, which is another thing we're quite shy to, to sort of face up. We, if net zero, achieving net zero, was easy to be doing, we'd be doing it already. This wouldn't be such a challenge. It wouldn't be that conversation. So there is a piece around we can't shy away from some of the really awkward conversations we do have to have in order to get there. But unless we start unpicking that piece, we can have some brilliant conversations, but it doesn't necessarily translate to action. I'm not saying there isn't anything that's being done. There is some brilliant work being done, but actually we're definitely not doing it on the scale and the pace we need to. And 
net zero is just one aspect of climate change. You know, biodiversity, water, they're all coming very short behind. So we, there is a huge amount that needs to be achieved at a pace that we currently have yet to, to do. And I think one of the, the hardest challenges and probably barriers is that consistency in the messaging. Granted, the general population struggles to understand what we need to do, but even as an industry, we're not consistent in what our version of net zero is, what we actually need to do first, where the priorities are. And I'm not saying we'll all have a utopia where everyone exactly aligned, but I think there is certainly greater alignment that needs to be had around some of those things. But actually, we need to join up all the dots here. It's a lot easier to talk about it. The reality is doing it. And I think there has been some momentum, but the, the, yeah, talking about it's great, but actions speak louder than words, I guess. We are very focused on decarbonisation, but there is more to life than just decarbonisation. We need to be thinking of this in terms of climate change. Yes, we need to reduce our carbon. Yes, we need to improve the lives of people and improve biodiversity, but also being prepared for climate change when it really starts to hit us and building climate resilience into what we're doing at the same time as we're decarbonising. I know I've just sort of thrown it out even more, but the outcome is to address climate change. And I would say we're still not there yet. Again, we're nibbling away at the massive elephant, but I think we all know what is the right thing to do and what is the right outcome. We've also got to look at this from a lens of equity. So as we think about climate change, it impacts everybody and every community differently. Again, coming out of COVID, there's a lot of emphasis on economic rebuilding. And so we've got to make sure we do that in a smart way where the benefits are spread throughout the population. And we've got to be mindful that the impacts, the negative impacts will if we don't make the right moves, the impacts will be different based on different people. And taking a more holistic view of the approach is critical uh, as we try to tackle the larger challenges ahead of us. Steve, how are you taking the holistic view? So going back to the kind of outcomes bit, our 2030, 2040, 2050 targets are outcomes. We want to get to a level of emissions corporately within construction and maintenance uh, and within road users. So that, that's good. I can absolutely see and see the uh, investment happening for how we are going to get there corporately. So for instance, we recently approved more than a £100 million investment case for changing all of our light bulbs around the network to LEDs. That's a big source of our own personal carbon footprint as a company. If we're going to get there for construction and maintenance, we need to be able to contract for the outcome. So there, I think the, the kind of work that Kim is a, a real leader on is at the past 2080, being able to estimate carbon in a way that everybody recognises, being able to collect outturn data in a way that is robust enough that we can enforce contractual conditions, agreeing the way that we would incentivise carbon reduction. Going back to the Norwegians again, they put a carbon price of £500 a tonne in their contracting, which unsurprisingly resulted in quite a bit of attention from their contractor base about how to reduce it. Into the road user space, you've really got three options that will deliver reductions in the outcome in terms of emissions. Either the vehicle stock decarbonises or and those vehicles are driven more efficiently and or they're driven fewer miles. So we've got to be clear that the policies that we're putting in place are going to achieve 
rapid decarbonisation of vehicle stock, encourage efficient driving, and look at moderating the growth in, in vehicle kilometres. And, and have we got the right set is a, is a question. Basically, carbon is involved in everything that National Highways does. Your job title is Director of Environmental Sustainability. If you didn't watch it, you would have to be across every single project, every single decision made by just about every single person within the organisation. So what are you doing to make that cultural change and what lessons can others learn from what you've learnt? I am really clear within the company that my team is staying small. We're there to coordinate, we're there to convene, we're there to smooth through issues, but the actions that are going to deliver the change are owned across the business. For the Net Zero Plan, we took all of the commitments in the Net Zero Plan, each of those individually is owned, and there is an executive director who sponsors each of those actions. And I'm running a, a governance process to make sure that progress is happening on all of those. This is a job where I have done more public speaking than I've done in the rest of my life put together in the last nine months. So uh, a big part of it is getting out there and exciting people about how important this is. It's core to what we do. Just as safety became part of everybody's job, environmental sustainability is too. I think the accountability piece is key. So you mentioned governance and I think how do we make this happen? It is having the assurance and the accountability. And I know it sounds potentially boring or it's quite simple, but actually, we set out the intentions. We do need to ensure that everyone is playing their part. So that's you know valid internally within the organisation. What we need from supply chain, what we need from clients. So it's having that continuous focus on it and really keeping it very simple. Actually, carbon, you know, the whole net zero agenda can be made a bit of a bit of a dark art if we really wanted to. But realistically, making it mainstream and relatable to everyone, it has to be translated into their world. So we don't need everyone to be a carbon expert. We do need everyone to understand what does carbon look like or decarbonisation look like in your world. So whether you're a planner, a commercial, whatever it might be. For me, it's that translation piece that is key. And then the accountability of, OK, this is your part to play. They have to own it. Steve Elderkin from National Highways, Kim Yates of Mott McDonald, Ramin Masumi of Arcadis and Lara Young of Costain on our panel talking about the race to decarbonise roads on this week's Highways Voices. We'll hear more in a moment after our partner news. Highways Voices, with the latest news and events from our partner organisations ITS UK, Elkrig, Adept and the Transport Technology Forum. All delegates who attended Elkrig's Strictly Highways event in Blackpool this year can now catch up on all the presentations and live debates on the event platform. The Strictly Highways event took place at the Winter Gardens in Blackpool from the 5th to the 6th of October and the theme for the event was Making the Case for Local Roads. You can watch the sessions at strictlyhighways.elkrig.org.uk. Adept has published its initial reaction to the autumn state President Mark Kemp expressed relief that at least some funding security was now in place, but warned that continued inflation meant councils would still be making tough decisions and cuts to services. The president also warned the government that councils cannot afford to make repeated funding bids. He said, I think I can safely speak for most authorities when I say what a waste of time, resource and money we've had to spend on putting in bids for investment zones 
at a time when councils can ill afford it. Mr Kemp also welcomed the government's announcement on energy efficiency of homes, but questioned why the work was not starting immediately. ITS UK has welcomed its new chief executive. Max Sugarman hits the ground running, beginning his role by travelling to Dublin to meet fellow heads of national ITS associations at a meeting of the ITS nationals body. Over the next few weeks, he'll be introducing himself and getting to know members, some of whom he's already met at Highways UK. Mr Sugarman is succeeding current Secretary-General Jenny Martin, who is retiring after more than 20 years with the organisation. The pair will work together until Mrs Martin's retirement in mid-January. And the Transport Technology Forum's Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Charging Working Group, with the support of the Office of Zero Emission Vehicles, OZEF, has delivered a simple starter guide aimed at helping local authorities understand the challenges around delivering on-street charging networks for electric vehicles. The eight-page document is designed to give authorities an idea of actions required to deliver EV chargers on the public highway. The high-level guidance is written for people familiar with installing equipment on the roadside but may not yet know what specific requirements they may have to consider for EV chargers. It's not a detailed guidance and is not intended to support detailed design and implementation of a scheme but does provide an overview of the main considerations to allow policy formulation and planning for future delivery. You can find that document on the TTF website. Highways Voices, the podcast from highwaysnews.com highwaysnews.com Now back to our discussion at Highways UK on the race to decarbonise roads. When was the last time you saw an advert on the TV for a car that wasn't an electric vehicle? I mean, that's that's one of the, the real step changes is that certainly the motor industry is working very hard on, on putting those messages across. It's a bit harder with freight. How are we going to decarbonise the vast amount of goods that are being moved around on our roads? Freight emissions on our network are about a third of our emissions. So while it's only about 10% of the vehicle miles, it's, it's a third of the emissions. So it's a, it's a hugely important issue. And it is not as far advanced as cars and vans. There's three competing technologies here. So all of them probably have an electric powertrain for the, for the truck. But the question is, what stores the, the big amount of energy you need to give a range to that lorry? It's either going to be a bigger battery it's going to be hydrogen and a fuel cell, or it's going to be some form of external power line that, that provides power into the, uh, to the truck. We're working really hard with Innovate UK, with the government, priling those technologies. We're really keen to see them make progress. I don't think we're in a position where we know what the right solution is yet. I think there's an element of using technology and the logistics space to get goods as more efficiently as possible to their destinations. All of our shopping habits have evolved. The internet, smartphones changed that. COVID changed those habits. And it's become even more and more important uh, on a logistics side. So there's the vehicle side, as you discussed, but then there's on the logistics side so that every time a truck is moving goods from one end to another, it's optimally filled, gets to its destination, and then it's reused again. So there's multiple elements. Obviously, there's the recharging as we move to alternative fuels. If it's electric, it requires a business model change for the logistics institutions, companies. At its core, though, it's technology. And there's more and more technologies available 
to support that optimization that will be critical. As a technology journalist, I'm just interested in where does technology fit into all of this when it comes to making the optimum, making it as efficient as possible. You know, technology can, can improve efficiency, that it can deliver things quicker, but how can we best use technology to make sure that uh, we are as efficient as possible? Well, I think there's an element of tracking. In order to keep ourselves honest, to make sure we're making the right decisions, it's using technology to track that. There is technology to help optimize operations. There's technologies in the space of construction to ensure optimal resources are used in, in the efforts going around the construction. And the industry is evolving, as you very well know in your writings, Paul, that uh, every day there's new sensor technology, new analytics resources, cloud computing, all are helping us have a better picture of what is happening at a holistic level and that's going to be critical as we move forward. I'm not knocking that technology has a massive part to play, but it is an enabler unless it's actually used in the right manner or, you know, painting the picture is great, but unless you do something to change the picture, it still remains just a picture. So for me, I think the technology has a passive part to play, it is the part of the solution, but it's not the be-all and end-all in terms of it will just do it all for you. There is a key piece of knowing actually what piece of technology or what innovation is most relevant to roll out. And I think there is a struggle with, especially with the whole digitalization of everything, there gets a point where it's technology overload or information overload. And I think there is a balance to be found and our maturity as an industry to, to, to be able to use more and more of it but sometimes less is more of actually honing in on really where are the two key, three big things that we need to do, find the right optimum select technologies that you need to use, but then really driving that change. I think there is, well, I suppose maybe my personal concern is the technology is seen as the solution. It is a part if it's used in the right way and actually deployed, because I'm sure we can all name loads of examples of things that are brilliant, but actually not used in the right way and therefore don't enable the results we, we anticipate. And I think we're all agreeing with that one. So a tool is a tool, but it's what you do with it. And is there a law of unintended consequences? Because, for example, I was really impressed by a piece of transport modelling that uses live traffic information, historical modelling. You can work out there's going to be a traffic jam before a traffic jam happens, then change the phasing of lights, change VMS, other behavioural things, in order to stop that traffic jam building up. But in talking to one person, and when I was saying what a good idea this was, they went, yeah, except that all it's going to do is just encourage more people on the road. So you've got that real difficulty of wanting to do what Steve said, of reducing the number of miles we drive, but at the same time you want to do that whilst not pricing certain people in society out of being able to drive. What we don't want to do is, is end up in a situation where only wealthy people can afford to have a car. But I think this is part of my point before, having some of those awkward conversations around actually, um, there isn't one right solution, but being able to actually bring that to light and recognise, well actually this is going to penalise certain elements of society, or it's having the, the whole picture and that clarity and bringing that conversation to light as opposed to, you know, acknowledging these things and finding what is the optimum solution. Part of it is actually, I think for me, a key bit is ensuring that we have joined up all the dots to know what are all of those implications or the potentials of and if we know that that is a potential thing that could happen 
what are the means to avoid that or what is the optimum balance. But um, there is also a piece of recognizing that this isn't easy. There are, you know, it, there is a challenge around to drive this change. Not everyone's going to like it. There are going to be things that are harder to do than others. And recognizing that that's part of this, part of this thing is actually, it's not going to be easy and not, it, it's not the most simplest thing to do. And it's never going to be perfect. So I think that's, that balance is to be struck still. Steve Elderkin of National Highways, Kim Yates from Mock McDonald, Ramin Masumi of Arcadis and Lara Young of Costain, the panel on this week's Highways Voices. We're almost out of time, but before we go, we have got time for... Adrian's accolade. And finally, my accolade goes to the team at TMP Solutions. They have announced that the innovative and eco-friendly non-crate biopolymer bollard has won the Green Apple Environment Award for helping the environments. The biopolymer product is made from sugarcane, weighs 3.5 kilos, and is fully recyclable and can easily be transported, lifted, and fitted into place. And due to the ability of sugarcane to absorb CO2 as it grows, the bollards generate a negative carbon impact compared to some of their concrete counterparts. Congratulations to the team at TMP. And that'll do it for this Highways Voices. Thanks for your company, and we'll talk again soon. Highways Voices. Join us again next week for more insights from those that matter in the industry. 